Praise God. Well, if you would, uh, stand with me one last time as we uh, go to the word of the Lord together. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. All right, man. Praise God. All right. All right. That's good. So it's not hard to find. Just turn to the back of the Bible. All right. All right. So we're going to end our series today, uh, the Unseen uh, War. We're going to be looking at the victory we have in Christ, this new creation that he's bringing, uh, and the victory that he's overcome all things. Revelation verse, uh, chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual morals, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. Praise God for his word. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. You know, the story of Christianity is one that is bathed in the blood of the lamb. In fact, it's not only bathed in the blood of the lamb, but it's also bathed in the the, the word of the believer's testimony. In fact, when the Bible talks about the believers of God, the saints of God, in Revelation 12, 11, it says this, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So have you heard what we're singing? We're just singing scripture. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. So they overcame by the word of their testimony, by their faith and trust in Christ. So we see this reality that the believers of Christ are victorious. And though we face battles, we're still victorious in him because he is victorious. For the last several weeks, we've zeroed in on the reality of this unseen battle that we're in. And we've explored our, our enemies. We've explored the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've also explored the, the arsenal that God has given us, the, the weapons, the, uh, the armaments that we have to stand firm until Christ returns, to resist the devil, to stand firm in the attacks that may come our way. God has not left us defenseless. In fact, the story of the church is one of martyrs. That is the story of the Christian faith. It is one of martyrdom. It's just fairly new for us in this country that we don't face that type of faith. We don't have uh, our faith being, uh, well, we can't come to worship. We're still able to worship. We're still able to gather. Uh, Praise God for that. We should be thankful for that. But we have to recognize across the world, this is not normal. What we call normative Christianity here, across the world, 
People are like, wow, you guys got big buildings and big budgets, and still people don't come. Brothers and sisters have laid down their lives for the gospel, for the greatest of causes. Brothers and sisters who followed their Savior and were mistreated and maligned for the sake of the gospel. Now, we have a real enemy of our souls, and this enemy even works through the hearts and lives of people. He maligns us, oppresses us, and tries to destroy the people of God. That's the enemy's MO. Yet the gospel cannot be stopped. So the message of the cross, the reality of the cross, is greater than dictators. It's greater than tyrants. It's greater than presidents. It's greater than any edict that could be passed down. No, because the Savior is still King of kings and Lord of lords. So it's fitting to really end this series of the passage that is written to believers. And it's written to believers to show and really encourage them in the battle that they're facing. That even through their persecution, that the Lamb is and will be victorious. Through the victory of the Lamb, they too will be victorious. So when we think through the first century, first century of the church, we think through first century, second century, we see this reality. We even look at the first disciples. What did it look like for them? Well, when we look at some of them, we can't even even have time to go through all of them. But when we look at even Peter, history has it that he was crucified upside down. Paul was jailed and beheaded. Thomas, who we love to kind of laugh at and jeer a little bit of, of the, you know, he gets really a bad moniker, you know, this uh, doubting Thomas. But Thomas was not some flaky disciple. I mean, we get these misnomers out of Christianity because people say stuff and we just run with it. Thomas wasn't no flaky disciple. Thomas loved Jesus. He was on fire for the Lord. In fact, history has it that he preached the gospel in India and was pierced by the spears of soldiers because of the gospel. Philip had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa. Oh, you know, I keep going there because we keep kind of poking holes in this lie. People keep telling that Christianity has no place in No. Here's Philip, ministry in Carthage in North Africa, and then in Asia Minor, where he, was, he, conver- he, w- he converted the wife of a Roman uh, soldier and a proconsul. And so in retaliation, they had Philip arrested and put to death. No, when you look through church history, it is laced, it is dripping with the blood of the martyrs. First, second, third century Christianity was not... Preaching, get money. First, second, third Christianity was not telling people, claim your blessing, your breakthrough, your miracle, your harvest. It was not teaching those things. How do you have time to teach when your life is in danger? You're not teaching those kind of things. You're telling people, no, this is what the Lamb has said. This is the victory we have in Christ. This, I can say, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Yet we come to the beloved disciple John, who was cast into the exile in the Isle of Patmos. It was here that he received this revelation and a glimpse of the glories of heaven. Yet we must remember this text was meant to be read to local churches. 
Y'all, we can't get off on like, you know, blood moons and all this kind of stuff. You read the text historically that was written to believers to encourage them who were being persecuted. No, it was meant not just as some futuristic text, although there's a lot of uh, futuristic things and prophetic things there. No, it was meant to be written now to deal with what they were going through even now. Right then in that moment, as the things that we're struggling with, it's meant to be applied. So any text we read in the scripture is meant to be applied. How can we apply this to our lives? What is God saying to us? Text given to give us encouragement. How do we know this? How do we know this? Pastor, why are you saying this? Revelation 1.3. Again, look to the scripture. What does the scripture say about itself? 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written. So he said, what is the whole meaning of reading? So you can keep what you read. You can actually apply what the scripture is saying. Why? Because the time is near. So Christians have always held that time was near, that Christ was going to return, that Christ was coming back. They lived their lives in that manner, that the time was near. And so we see, we read this text as it's written to those who lived in a time of intense persecution. Let's put on that lens as we read this and apply the spiritual truth of these principles to us now. Right? So you have really the first set of persecution of Christians under Nero. Then you have the a next set of a, under a, another emperor that this is some scholars believe this was written in. So you got to remember John is writing this and believers are reading this and they're reading this under persecution. So the spirit of God is communicating to them the reality of how they can overcome and remain in their faith. Not only what's to come, but how the lamb keeps them now. So the point of being is tribulations have been the lot of Christians for centuries. Again, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not that special. What I'm trying to say, why do I keep saying that? It is not to put us down, but this is what I'm saying. I'm saying if we hold to a faith that says God will not allow us to go through anything, then what are you really saying? So what you're really saying by your own logical admission is that we're somehow better than our brothers and sisters who have been martyred first, second, third, fourth, fifth century. How is that possible? So you're telling me now for us folks, God is not going to allow us to struggle through anything, but he allowed them to struggle and go through and lose their lives and be beheaded and boiled in oil and their children lost for the faith of the gospel. Yet for us, he's not going to allow us to suffer through anything. I'm just saying, y'all, it don't make sense to me. But that is an Americanized version of the gospel. Bigger things, bigger boats, bigger with everything, less suffering. No, Christians have always gone through yet overcome. Christians have always faced persecution yet overcome. They have overcome in the Lamb. It's our first point. The Lamb, though, will make all things new. 
We see this in the text, the reality that the scripture tells us that he sees John, a new heaven, a new earth, and the first heaven, heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. He sees all these things and he sees God making things new. In the beginning, the Bible tells us God created the heavens and the earth. All things were called good. We see the reality of the first humans, Adam and Eve, having this unhindered relationship with the God of the universe. The world was perfect without sin. God called all things good. It was truly a world where the lion was able to lay down with the lamb. This was God's intended design, yet the reality of sin entering the world, the first humans disobeying God, sin entering the world, causing a cascading effect of death and sorrow and destruction to come upon the Lord's good creation. How do we know this? Romans 8.22 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. John here says what he sees. He says this, I saw like three times in this text. What did he see? Saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the earth had passed away. We ultimately see what God has intended for his people. A new heaven, a new earth, a place where they too will have what was in the beginning. Unhindered relationship with him. Unhindered walking with him. No sin, no sorrow. In fact, the Bible tells us he's not just going to take the earth and just spruce it up. No, he's going to make it new because our God is one who makes all things new. He fixes the broken. He heals and mends. This is what God is all about. But God is saying, look, I'm not just going to make your bodies new. I'm not just going to make you new. I'm going to make the whole creation new. This wasn't just something the Lord revealed to John. But his plan to repair not only the broken souls of men, but to also fully deal with sin and its effects in the world. How do we know this? Well, the prophet Isaiah saw the same thing. So what I'm saying to you is this, my brothers and sisters. This has always been God's plan. So we're walking through, and they're walking through suffering and tribulation, and all these things are going on, and God is encouraging them. Look at what's to come. Isaiah 65, 17, and 18, it says this, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. Sounds like exactly what he just told John. God's not a man, that he should lie. God then gives John the same prophetic word he gave to Isaiah. He says, look, I created new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice for what? Forever. Forever. And what I'm creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Now, the Jews read that and say, wow, he is going to do this for his Jewish people. And yet they didn't know the fullness of God's message. Yet we read this and know the fullness of his message is this. He's not just come for the Jew. He came for the Gentile as well to make one new man for himself, one new nation for himself that will worship him forever and ever for all of time. Now think of this, put yourself in the cultural context that we're talking about. You're a persecuted believer, 
You're reading this letter that's been circulating around this time. And you're, you're reading this. And you're, you're, your neighbor, just who was a Christian, just got uh, put in jail. And they're being persecuted. And you're reading this. And you're saying, look, I can look out the door and see people carrying small statues of idols for emperor worship. Let me pause here for a second because we got to know you cannot read the scripture outside of the cultural context because you can read into it whatever you want. You have to understand the Romans were influenced by the Greeks. The Greeks, what they did, when an emperor would die, they would instantly, well, before they died, they would deify them. So anybody who was an emperor in charge, they were therefore God or, you know, Lord, curious. But yet the Romans, what would happen is that when an emperor would, would die, then they would be deified. So that's why you see emperors' faces on coins. It was all a part of worship. So what they would do, they would have these emperor cults. And the cults would do this. They would have little statues, little idols, and they would walk around with those. And this is how they could buy and sell. So when you talk about marks of beasts and all this kind of stuff, it is hearkening to this. Not microchips and stuff. It was showing them, this is what John is saying. They could look out their door and see emphatically what he was talking about. That people in the brokenness of the world that they were in, you got to understand, you had an emperor, Nero, who actually literally lit people on fire. And John says, behold, what God is saying. There's coming a day when, guess what, all the things Nero has built all the things every Caesar has built, all the things that any empire has built will be brought to naught. Because the king is making all things new. Can you imagine for a believer, they're saying, we're going to throw you to the lions. We're going to cause you to say, if you don't worship, you can't buy or sell. You can say, you can do whatever you want because guess what? Your kingdom is coming to nothing. Because the King of kings and Lord of lords is making all things new. Come on, just help somebody this morning. They're looking at this as a world that is completely against their faith. And the Lord says, look, I'm going to set free even my creation. That's been marred by sin. Even now we see this world and we see the beauty of this world. Can you imagine, though, when beauty is unhindered? What a day that's going to be when the recreated world is recreated for his glory alone. Yet the text tells us what this will be like. The first heaven and earth will pass away. The very earth and sky will be done. And even more, the sea, the sea will be no more. Now, this is not necessarily saying, and we can't read into the text what it doesn't say. It's not necessarily saying there will be no sea or no water, but we see this reality of a recreated earth. A recreated earth. 
You even think of how much in the scripture the destruction of storms and seas and, and the things the people of God have had to go through. And God says, look, even the seas themselves will be no more. This recreation of the heavens and earth, this rearranging the world, a, a new look of the planet for his kingdom people. So when we think of heaven, in the sense of heaven, yes, to die, if you died right now and you're in Christ, to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. Where the Lord is right now, this is where you would go. But that's only a stopping point. That's not, that's not your final destination. You drop dead right now, I drop dead right now, guess what? I mean, you're going to be sad. Oh, man, we lost our pastor. He's gone. But, you know, <laughs> I will be. I just won't be here. I will be with the Lord. Yet, my final and our final destination is here. In a recreated new heaven, new earth, with him forever. Now, some of us just got like, man, hold on, sweet time, don't get angels' wings and, you know. You don't turn into an angel. God loves you too much to turn you into an angel. He does. He loves you too much to turn you into an angel. Why? Because your body has immense value to him. So recreate your body. That's why your body has dignity, value, and worth. So why worry about getting wings? You don't need wings. You're going to be recreated with a glorified body. That's better. So your, our final destination is here. Only it'll be a perfect earth with him for forever and ever. World without end. So we think of this. You think of heaven. Think of this will be it. Except recreated with the Lord. Revelation 21.2 says this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepare like a bride adorned for her husband. See, right there. He's preparing a place for us. Notice, see here, this is the second time John says, I saw. What a beautiful sight to behold. The Lord reveals to John the place Jesus is preparing for his people. You know, Jesus said, look, I, behold, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be also. What is this place? This is it. Coming down for his people, you say, Lord, and his work is marvelous. Preparing a place for us. My brothers and sisters, put yourself again in the cultural context and you're reading this as a, a first century Christian being persecuted and you're walking through this and you're reading about a new place. But you're living in this old place that is against you fully. Could you imagine believers in Ephesus reading this and they're walking out their door and they're looking up and they see the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, and they see the temple prostitutes and they see all this stuff and they're looking around and they feel like this place is just not for me. And they read this and say, but a home is coming. Where no idols will stand. No, no, no temporal prostitutes will be there because there will be no more sin and no more suffering. And this is what John, by the, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, John is being revealed these things. God has a holy city for a holy people. A city prepared for a prepared people. Notice this city comes down from the Lord. It's not a city we prepare. So we don't prepare a place for ourselves. 
We don't save ourselves. This is all the Lord's doing. The city is described as adorned like a bride. And we go back to Revelation 3, we see the promise God made to his church, a promise that John now is seeing fulfilled. What was the promise? The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So John sees the reality of what's to come. That is a new city, a new Jerusalem. Well, what's the old Jerusalem like? I can tell you what the old Jerusalem like because I went there not a bunch of times. The old Jerusalem right now, it is broken. You have Muslims, you have Jews, you have all these things. It's a very old city and, and, and it's old. I mean, it, it's old, it's ancient. Yet the new Jerusalem is prepared for one people. God's people, both Jew, Gentile, but one new man in Christ. People ask the question, you know, what do Jews need today? The gospel. You want to pray for Jerusalem? Pray for them to get saved. Pray for them to come to know Christ as Savior and accept him as their Messiah. Say, what do Muslims need today? The gospel. Pray for them to come to know Christ. Not, not the Jesus of the Quran, but the Jesus of the text, of the Bible. The one who came and laid down his life, only to take it back up again. Listen to these words, and we see this from the persecuted believer's perspective. Their God, who is victorious, has called them his bride. And their home... It's his bride as well. Why? It's because it's prepared people for a prepared place. In Revelation eleven two, the holy people in the holy city were trampled on. But not this city and not this people. Y'all hear what I'm saying? You hear, you hear what the text is communicating to us? It's communicating to us that, yeah, you may live in places, you may be in situations where you're being trampled on, you're being oppressed by the evil one, and you're being oppressed by evil people, and they're trampling upon you, but not in this city. This is a city where his people never are trampled on. This is a city where, guess what, there need no sun, no moon, because he is all in all. There is no Nero. There is no domination. There is no Roman emperor. There is no president. There is no this, that, or the other. It is him and him alone. But look at this. Verse 3 and 4. We see that God will dwell with his people. <laughs> then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The new city, this new Jerusalem, this holy city is a wondrous and glorious place. But it's only as glorious as the one who built the city. Notice the text tells us that John now hears. He hears a glorious voice of God from the throne. He hears it. Could you imagine what that sounds like? I know people say they've heard God. You, I mean, you, you think you've heard God. I mean, John hears God. 
God's dwelling is with humanity. In the garden, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, enjoyed this unhindered relationship with the Lord, dwelling in his presence. Yet the text tells us that God will literally tabernacle with his people. Jesus made his dwelling with us. He's our manual. He's God with us. Yet God dwelt with man in the garden. He dwelt with man in the desert as well. Yet now God lives within us. We are now his temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yet here, we see the full reality of him being with us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says the same thing. But we are the temple of the living God, and God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Could you imagine, I mean, walking with Jesus like, like the disciples did? I mean, right there, walking with him in that close proximity to him and being in that relation. I, I, I don't understand how all this works. And if I got up here and tried to explain to y'all how all this is going to work, I would be lying because I don't know. He is my God and your God at the same time, and yet we will experience him all in glorious truth in that moment. There's a coming day where we'll dwell in his presence and there will be fullness of joy. The people of God will enjoy forever the intimacy with God unlike any other. And when Jesus said to his disciples where he will be, there will be also this is the fullness of that promise. Look at the reality, though, of God's dwelling. Because here's the thing, God's dwelling with us comes with implications for us. God's dwelling in us now, the implications of it is that the gospel can go forward. And we're his people. We're his gathered ones. We are the ones who've been called out. And so now the implications are now. It's like, well, Paul was praying that we're going and we're proclaiming Christ and we're making known who Jesus is to the dying world. But look at the implications of him dwelling fully in his presence with us both then. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Anybody cry this week? Death will be no more. Anybody lost someone the past couple of years? Death will be no more. Grief. Anybody grieved over something lately? Crying. Pain will be no more. Why? Because the previous things have passed away. What are the previous things? The old earth. And all the things that come with it. With the passing away of the earth, so will the brokenness of this old earth pass with it. Now, this may seem very disconcerting because I remember growing up, a lot of my family background on one side is very Jehovah's Witness. And their view, I would say this is the one thing, the only thing they get right is the reality of a new heaven, new earth. Yep, that is true. Where they go wrong completely is that only those who are in that 144,000, 144,000 will be there. You can tell they don't read the Bible. And you can tell they just don't. And, and they don't want to read the Bible. They have their own translation, which has been debunked, and it's got so many lies in it and stuff like that. This is not, it's not downplaying a people. This is the reality of fact. I was very disconcerting. You hear this, and you're like, man, it's going to be a new heaven, new earth. Or, wow. But when you understand that you're secure in Christ and you'll be there as well, there is no fear of that. 
Understanding you're not going to be destroyed with the old heavens and the old earth, that you will be with him, that you are his people. He is your God. And how do you become his people? Through the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, this is not for us to fear because it shows the kingdom we're a part of has no end. My brothers and sisters in Christ, your view of end times should not leave you shaking in your boots. How? We don't see that communicated to the early church. What we see communicated to them is that brothers and sisters hope for what is coming your way. Long for his appearing. Long for him to come back. There is a reward to those who long for him to come. What does our God do in the passing away of this, this present world? He deals with our suffering. He wipes away tears. He removes death. He removes pain. Think of this as a persecuted believer reading this. To hear this good news, understand throughout centuries, throughout the centuries, believers have not been waiting for just one antichrist to appear, but historically have seen many antichrists over the centuries. You have to understand, historically, if you look at this, I'm not making this up. Go read church history for yourself. Go read Fox's Book of the Martyrs. Go read some of the early church fathers. Early Christians saw Nero, Domination, different ones as being the Antichrist. Why? Because the spirit of the Antichrist, it is working among us now. So my brothers and sisters, if you're sitting around waiting for some magical person to appear, can I tell you something? The spirit of the age is already at work. We don't need to go beyond the scripture. In fact, Christians have, they, this is one thing we learn from history. We do. Christians over time have done this. And every time they do it, we get egg on our face. This is what Christians have done throughout, throughout the century. I'm telling you, go read church history. Anytime we try to sit up and say, I'm going to tell you exactly who the Antichrist is, it always turns out to be that person dies and doesn't do anything. World War II. Christians said, see, it's Hitler. Where's Hitler now? And where are we? Still here. No, we don't need to go beyond what the scripture says or teaches. Anything outside of that is just pure speculation. And we are not a speculative people. That's when you get off into conspiracy theories. You don't need to speculate. Just go by what the text says. And the stuff it doesn't say, just leave it alone. The spirit of the Antichrist has been at work and is at work now. What can we stand on and know? Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. A plethora of Christian teaching today leads many Christians to believe Grief, crying, and pain are not a part of their Christian experience. Unless you live on Mars, it's going to be a part of your Christian experience. The Bible is clear. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. If grief, suffering, pain were not a part of our Christian experience, God would not have to do away with it. No, they were called to take victory 
in Christ. But many take this idea of victory in Christ and they twist it to say those who are his are somehow immune to suffering or pain in this life. And that is not true. I mean, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, and every time I buy it, I'm always ending up with grief, suffering, and pain. I was sitting right there. We were singing that song, We Will Overcome by the Blood of the Lamb, Word of Testament. I think about all the stuff I'm worried about, all the stuff I'm suffering with, and I just begin to cry. Why? Because I'm hurting. And I need the Lord's help. So, so sometimes you're, God has given you your emotions like that check engine light to tell you, hey, it's okay for you to be human and suffer. We suffer, we hurt, we grieve, yet we don't face those things without hope. Our hope is in the victorious Christ who has overcome, yet there is coming a day when those things will be no more. Where the rain won't fall anymore. Because there is no need for rain in a new kingdom. There is no more rain. There is no more COVID. There's no more arguments over vaccines. You won't need to be vaccinated. Praise God. Some of y'all are like, praise God. I ain't getting vaccinated anyway. Okay, look. When you get there, you won't have to worry about it. This past week, I said, Lord, if you come right now, it will be great. I, I know I'm the only one saying that kind of stuff. I, 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 if you come, seeing all the crazy stuff on Twitter, people falling out, Christians doing it, I'm like, Jesus, you just need to come back so that way your people have nothing more to argue about. Can you imagine in heaven getting up? I agree with your position on this, Jesus. Who's jumped over the wall? You, you, don't, you don't even belong here. No, in his glorious kingdom, there is no more arguing. There is no more falling out. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's none of that because we're unified in Christ. You don't need committees in heaven. Ministry, you don't need nothing. He is all in all. In that day when those things will be no more, when the rain won't fall anymore, because sin has passed away, there's no crying in his presence because there is the fullness of joy. There's no death in his presence because death, along with Satan, will be cast into the lake of fire, judged by the righteous king of the universe. Grief, crying, and pain has no place because the root cause sin is done away with. Could you imagine standing at your wife or brother's grave who's been martyred because of their faith and the feeling of great injustice of it all? It's how it feels when someone dies. Death isn't fair. It wrongs us. Sin causes it. But yet for the believer, we don't stand at the graveside without hope. We stand with immense hope 
Because God promises a time where he will deal justly with that which is dealt with his people and giving them the greatest pain. Wouldn't it be, it's going to be awesome when death and God deals with it. Jesus has already overcome it. Yet there's coming a day when he will do away with it. You know, there's not going to be like a, you know, a hood heaven, you know, but if I was a part of it, I'd be like, get him, get him. Death and, and, and Satan, get, get him. No, there's going to be a refined heaven. I won't be talking like that out there. I'd be like, I don't know him. He ain't passing me. Justice will be done. No, we see this reality that God is going to deal with those things that give his people the greatest pain. Even today, we just say about the graves of those who have died in the faith and say, the tears that roll down my cheeks today will be wiped away in his kingdom tomorrow. So we rejoice and we continue in Christ because we know that we will be in his kingdom with those who have gone on before us. Great joy will that be. Even if you've lost someone, even now, yes, the pain is real, but yet God understands that. There'll be no more grief and sorrow. Why? Because here's our last thing. God will satisfy his people and fulfill his promise. How do we end this? This very last point, the one who's seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. John hears this booming voice again from the throne, and he announces, write these words. His words are both faithful and true. His word can be trusted and proclaimed to his people. He says to them, it is done. When Jesus cried on the cross, it was finish, it was a sufficient work to pay our sin debt. Yet there's coming a day where he will say, it is done. And he proclaims his authority. How can he say it is done? Because he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Essentially declaring, I am the first and the last. He exists outside of time. He sees all things from his vantage point. And he is God and there's no one else above him, beside or around him that can even compare to him. See, Understand, remember, if you're reading this as a first century believer, he's saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Caesar is saying, I am all in all. John is saying, oh, my brothers and sisters, you don't worry about Caesar. You don't worry about domination. You don't worry about Nero because in the end, here's the thing. He is the Alpha and Omega. So when they keep telling you to say Caesar curious, you say, no, I, I can't. I serve the Alpha and the Omega. I serve Jesus alone. He is Lord. So you say, they're telling you, you should bow down to the emperor worship because if you don't, you won't be able to buy or sell. You need to walk around with these idols to show that you're worshiping the emperor. And the believer says, no, I serve the Alpha and the Omega. So do your worst. For the Christian, they couldn't take the mark of the emperor. They can only declare Jesus is Lord. 
to the victor, to the one who overcomes in Christ, they are never thirsty again. Why? Because he declares, I will give you the water of life. And we remember the words of Christ to the woman at the well. Samaritan woman, what do you tell her? Look, if you drink from this water, you would never thirst again. It sounds like Jesus is just saying the same thing he's been saying. John, because you imagine, I mean, come on, man, you get the cultural context, it just makes it so much richer. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's not just chilling, drinking Mai Tais. They have him in the mines. This is an old man working in mines, chained and working. And guess what? He doesn't have his thirst quenched. But he has his vision and the Lord says to those who trust in me will never thirst. I mean, could you imagine as a first century Christian, you're being persecuted or you can't get water from a well. You just can't turn on the spigot and you're hearing the Savior say, there's coming a day. I know you're thirsting. I know you're thirsting physically. But I filled you spiritually. But the way your tongue is parched now will come a day where you never have to worry again. We have brothers and sisters all around the world. That's their reality. And our Savior says, I know you. I love you. You are mine. And yes, you may be parched today. But there's coming a day where your parchedness will be no more. This is a boat of encouragement to the one, he says, who conquers. Not in their strength, but in the strength of the Lord. This is an encouragement to remain steadfast in the battle ahead, to press forward. Why? He gives them this affirmation. I'm a mess up here. I'm sorry. Verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Could you imagine, listen to this, and I have children. And you're a first or second century Christian, and, and, and you're being persecuted for your faith, and they tell you, renounce Christ. Or allow your children to be killed. And I go to gather with the saints and they read this passage. And I'm sitting there as a believer because I love Jesus and I love my children. And, and, and someone reads this passage and says, my brothers and sisters, we just got this letter and John has a vision. It's a prophetic vision, not the stuff you see on TV telling you your social security number and all that foolishness. And he says, my brothers and sisters, we, we got word from the Lord. And, and this is what he says. He says to us, to the one who conquers, they will inherit all things. And I got to go home and say, if I renounce Christ, I'll live. But I'll die. 
But if I stand firm in Christ, he says to the one who stands firm, they will overcome. This is not us earning our salvation. This is not us saying, look, this is you doing it. No, this is you standing firm in your faith in the Lord. Because 1 John 5, 4 says, but because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. What does it say there? Our what? Our faith. This is what John is saying there. You hear this this morning, my brothers and sisters, and you're rocking your faith. Let this speak to you right now. Some of you are like, I'm about to give up on God. I'm going to give up on Jesus. I'm going to go my own way. The devil's lied to you and told you the church doesn't love you. Jesus doesn't love you. The pastor don't love you. And you're sitting up saying, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> but he says to you, Remain in your faith in the Lord. I know some of us have lost. You lost children. You lost resources. You, you think life has been hard to you, but yet this speaks to us this morning. There is victory in Christ. I apologize, y'all. I'm sorry. The true kingdom citizen stays in the battle. They remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Often we can deify even those in the early church as if everyone held out under persecution, but the truth is many did not. Many succumbed to the temptation and deny Jesus. Even to the churches this letter was written to, the Lord warns them. Why do you think he warns them? He tells them this, he says in Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. He's essentially telling them, this is real churches he's writing to, real believers, and he's telling them, some of y'all in here are about to go down a road where you're going to be rejecting Jesus. And he tells them, the Lord tells them what to do in verse 16, so Repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? The word of God. We're going to see here what he's saying in the end. The Lord is speaking to believers here. He's saying, wake up, stay alert. Why? Well, the enemy is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Even in our country, we must be careful not to allow abundance to lull us to sleep as if there is no battle. Even in our country, we got to be careful. We're not taking on these things that people are telling us we need to be taken on and all these uh, this ideologies that we need to be taken in. And we take them in and then find ourselves wayward. Understand, we can find over the centuries, every church, believers falling into the same pattern as those we find in the book of Revelation. It's no different. This is just the reality of how we are living in this world. 
Yet those who practice these things, that's what he's saying. Those who make this a habitual pattern in their lives show they're truly not of him. They're truly not sons and daughters of the king. Never is it assumed anywhere in Revelation that all those in the Christian congregations were necessarily overcomers, meaning within us, there's wheat and there's tares. There's those who are really born again and those who are not. The Bible says here, he says, look, I'll come fight against you with my word. What was his word? But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual moral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all lies, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, those who are essentially not in me will find their place outside of me in a place we call hell. To the coward, he says. Essentially, why would he use cowards? Like, man, Lord, like, what's the deal with that? To the coward, those who shy back from their faith, who refuse to stand firm in the midst of the battle, those who shy away from Christ. That's what it's saying there. Those who say, you know what, I, I, can, I can rock with Jesus when everything's going good, but when things go bad, guess what's going to happen? Ah, you know what? To the faithless, they refuse to truly believe the good news about Christ, but they simply put on a show. You have the form of godliness, but deny the power of it. The result of this is the second death. It's the place of judgment. It's in hell with those who reject Christ. One could ask, is this fair? Well, the bigger thing we could respond with is this. Who is man to call the God of the universe unjust? Yet, we see the reality. All he does is right and good, and his judgments are perfect in every way. Yet, look at the mercy he shows even now allowing people to live who willfully reject him every single day. So then who really is unjust? Mankind. Today you can find eternal life. He offers it. Today you can have hope in Christ. And how do we apply this? Well, where do you need God to restore your hope? Where do you need God? Some of, some of you maybe have lost hope. You've given up. God stands and says to you, there's hope. I'm making all things new. I've overcome what about this? How will knowing the Lamb is victorious change your perspective of life? Some of us need to change our whole perspective on things to know that Christ is victorious, that he is overcome, that we're more than conquerors in, in Christ. What about this one? What is making you throw in the towel that you need to bring to the Lord? Maybe it's something that happened in the church. Maybe it's something that happened in there. But what's making you say, you know what? I'm going to give up on my faith. You know, it's a big thing now in Christianity that's called, you, you know, you're deconstructing your faith. It's a fancy word for apostasy. That's all it is. 
there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Height, death, angel, demon. Sickness, death. Why do you think he gives us that whole list? Because it's the reality of living life now. Yet if you're in this place where you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm, I'm no longer going to follow Jesus. Reject the lie of the devil. I'm talking to you, Christian. Maybe you're in that pit of despair like in Pilgrim's Progress and the devil has you and you're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. And I know you know how to put on a show. Some of you still come to church. You watch online and you're just showing how you just, you know, got it all together. But you know you're broken. And you know you're sinking. Just as Peter reached out his hand, you can reach out yours as well. Will you share an eternal life? I hadn't cried in a long time. I, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry. But will you share an eternal life? Are you born again? Those who are his are not fearful of his coming. We say, come soon. Because we're sure not place your faith and trust in Christ not in the White House not in policy not in this not in that Jesus alone let's go to the Lord in prayer I went way way long maybe you need to respond to this maybe you need to take a next step I don't know where you find yourself, but if you know the Lord is speaking to your heart to respond, go to him. Ask him to save you. Let us know about it. Take that next step of salvation. Father, I thank you for those who need to trust you as Savior. Lord, that they would respond, that they would say yes to you. That they would say, I need to follow Jesus. Those who are discouraged and in despair, I pray they would leave this place encouraged. That if they need prayer, if they need someone to lift them up, God, that they would respond. They would talk to someone. God, I thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.